The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love. That lasts forever Though His hope and sure salvation I will trust in Him Though the world falls around me I rest and know that He has found me Christ the rock is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, pastor is an acrostic which stands for preaching all salvation through one Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In this series of episodes, we continue a verse-by-verse study of the book of 1 Thessalonians using proper hermeneutical and exegetical principles. Our goal, as stated before, is to not only understand the details of what was going on at the time that this book was written, but more importantly, to understand what it is saying to God's elect in the church today. The reason, as stated before, is that as 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, God's word states that the Bible is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And again, this is because our presuppositional approach and our biblical worldview as God's saints is that God is the ultimate authority for meaning, morals, truth, beauty, significance, and reality. 
Further, our assumption is that God has chosen to reveal himself and his attributes, his relationship to man, his plan of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, and glorification via his Holy Spirit who breathes God's revelation into his word, the Bible. In our previous episode, we had reached a milestone of chapter 4 in 1 Thessalonians, and beginning in verse 1, Paul had began to undertake to the Thessalonians, and to all Christians indeed, that he was urging us in the Lord Christ to, just as the Thessalonian church had received instructions from him on how to live and please God, that they and we should do so more and more. In verse 3 of chapter 4, we saw that, according to Paul, it was God's will that we as a church become holy and that we keep away from sexual immorality. Further, Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, informs us of the fact that our bodies are not our own. As was pointed out in the previous episode, this idea is one which runs in complete contradiction to the world in which we live today. Today, and for indeed years past, we are bombarded from every quarter of humanity in the world that my body, your body, belongs to us exclusively and that we can make unilateral decisions on what we do with that body without regard to anybody, anyone, or anything. Again, as was pointed out, this is in contradiction to the Christian viewpoint, the viewpoint as revealed by God through his word, wherein my body, your body, is a gift from God. It is created in God's image. My body is God's body. Your body is God's body. I'm not at liberty unilaterally to do anything and everything that I want to do because ultimately what I do with my body either glorifies or dishonors God. Thus we found out that as we read scripture from cover to cover that in fact some behaviors are ordained and created and blessed by God as things that we can do with our body which glorify God. And then there are other things which are prohibited by God and which ultimately dishonor God as well as dishonoring our own bodies. Again, as stated before, when Paul talks about sexual immorality in verse 3, the issue of sexual immorality is a wedge that drives a clean distinction between the world, the flesh, and Satan, and the child of God. Simply put, there is no greater arena for debate than that of how we interact with other people with regard to sexual intimacy. And clearly, it's been an issue which has been ongoing for hundreds, if not thousands of years. In the end, you can make all the arguments that you want, but it boils down to this. Either God exists, his word is true, or it is not. 
If it is true, then God's propositional revelation is that we have a responsibility to God as to how we use our physical bodies with regard to sexual intimacy. To boil it down and to make it simple, God's word in context clearly paints the unmistakable picture that God gave the creation ordinance of marriage between one man and one woman as a covenant relationship wherein that man and that woman can engage in sexual intimacy and that is honorable before God. Conversely, simply put, any other relationship other than that is dishonoring God. Now one can look for chapter and verse with regard to proving this, and there are many that will do that. However, at the end of the day, the overriding argument, which is the nail in the coffin, so to speak, is that the marriage relationship, the creation ordinance of marriage, and sexual intimacy between a man and a wife in the covenant of marriage is the type of Christ and his church. Just as when one man and one woman engage in a relationship and become intimate and are one body as is stated in Genesis, so it is that when any particular person is drawn to Christ and develops a relationship, Christ and that person are one body. Therefore, to misuse any other relationship outside that dishonors the type, dishonors the substance, and dishonors God. Now, you might ask, as is often the case, are you saying that in order to achieve salvation, I have to avoid certain things? I have to be righteous, I have to be good, I have to do certain things a certain way in order to please God and in order to therefore achieve salvation and to enter into heaven. The answer is no. You're looking at things the wrong way. The reality of the situation is that if God and his sovereign will is so pleased to draw you unto himself as his child and to initiate a relationship with you and to fill you with his Holy Spirit, then as an axiomatic reality, just as a orange tree will produce oranges, a child of God who is filled with God's indwelling Holy Spirit will by necessity produce the fruit of righteousness. It's not the righteousness that gets us to salvation. It's salvation that produces righteousness. Therefore, if we in fact truly be in Christ, we as his children should progressively see these issues of sexual immorality and other sins falling away as we become increasingly sanctified through pursuing faith in God. If you'll open your 
copy of God's word, this then brings us to verse 7 of chapter 4, which says, For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. You'll notice first and foremost here that it is not we ourselves who are calling ourselves to cleanness or by trying to muscle our way into holiness, but rather God who is proactively changing our minds and our hearts from our natures which are unclean and unholy to placing holiness and cleanness into us by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Now, with regard to how holiness and cleanness pertains to the issue of salvation versus the unregenerate nature, we need go no further than Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 32, which Paul again comments on this subject. Here he says, Wives, submit yourself unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself as a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Here again, as we read Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 32, we notice how that in every case, the ultimate ruler and measure of what is good is God's authority for everyday living, including our physical bodies, which are not ours, as stated, but God's. Paul here gives God's revelation that the creation ordinance of marriage between one man and one woman is his copyright type intended by design to demonstrate the substance of the relationship between Christ and the bridegroom and the church, the bride. Again, this is why any marriage or sexual relationship which departs from his intentionally or otherwise disrespects God and is not ordained, intended, or blessed by God. When Paul says, For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness, Paul is here giving us an axiomatic statement. 
he's saying that in order to truly be Christ's bride, the church, God the Father, must draw or call us. This is the root meaning of the word church, ecclesia, which is a compound word, ek, meaning out, and kaleo, meaning called. So the believer is called out. He's separated from the world of unbelievers, or those who are not called. Thus, those who are truly called are no longer part of the world. They are justified and being sanctified. We are clean. Those who are unclean cannot be called out because if they were, they would be clean. At this point, you might be saying, well, that's nice, that's your opinion, but I don't believe that. Okay, let's move on to verse 8. What does it say there? Let's read. Therefore, the one who rejects this is not rejecting man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So here we are again brought back to the fact that this is God's revelation to us on his word on the matter, the final word on the matter. It's no longer an issue of my opinion versus your opinion. This is, thus saith the word of the Lord. In verse 9, Paul makes a transition. He says, now as to the love of the brothers and sisters, that is, the body of Christ, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Now here, the word love in Greek, uh, Philadelphias, from which we get the uh, English word and geographical location, Philadelphia, means brotherly love, in contrast to what we saw in verse 5, which was epithemia, a lustful desire or craving or longing for what is forbidden. Philadelphia carries with it the sense of love which has its highest priority, the spiritual, physical, and mental well-being of fellow believers with regard to their relationship with Christ. This love and concern supersedes our own personal fleshly carnal desires. In verse 10, Paul says, For indeed you practice it toward all the brothers and sisters who are in Macedonia, but we urge you, brothers and sisters, to excel even more. So here, Paul is giving compliment to the Thessalonian church, which is the, in the geographical region of Macedonia. But he is not content to leave it as is. He is saying to them and to us to excel every day even more. Now you might ask, well, how in the world is that possible? Well, it's possible because God is infinite. His attributes of love and joy and peace and righteousness and holiness are infinite. Therefore, if Christ be in us, if we submit to him, 
then we have the ability with his help to progressively sanctify more and more and it will increase that is just the reality verse 11 again a slight transition and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we instructed you now here in verse 11 where it says make it your ambition what the original Greek word means is that we should befriend or become fond or like or even love we should value reverence or honor the idea of leading a quiet life we should in fact strive each day for this next question you ask what is a quiet life what does that look like again we're helped by the original greek word hesokaizo which means to live quietly to refrain from being meddlesome or a nuisance in other words, instead of the focus always being on someone else and their perceived need to do something or not do something, to improve or to refrain from doing something, the focus is properly on oneself and to being sanctified into being submissive to God's word. There's where it starts. There's where it ends. Any interaction with others should be by way of example. Verse 12, so that you will conduct yourselves honorably and decently in view of those outside the church and not be in any need. In other words, the admonition in verse 11 to make it our ambition, to striving, to leading a quiet life where we're not meddlesome or a nuisance, was because Paul wanted our mindset and behavior to be for the purpose of having a good testimony for the unbelieving world around us. When in verse 12 Paul talks about us not being in any need, what he's talking about is that the idea that believers would not be lazy, unwilling to work, or that they would look upon the church as an institutional welfare system which would be to cause a burden on the church and be a poor testimony to the unbelieving world around them. Thus, charity of the church would be only reserved for the truly needy who had no other possible way of taking care of themselves. Finally, in verse 13, we come to a complete change of subject here where Paul says but I would not have you to be ignorant brethren concerning them which are asleep that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope so here Paul transitions from the day-to-day -day issues of how do we comport ourselves as citizens of the world and with relationships between other brothers and sisters in the church to the issue of eschatology or last things. It is also clear that the reason for the change and for bringing up the issue at large 
was because there was an apparent concern that the church at Thessalonica was dealing with some sort of an internal debate about those saints who had or were dying for whatever reason in the church. Clearly, people had been waiting patiently and faithfully for the Lord's return here since Christ left the earth. The Lord had not yet returned, and many saints in the church were dying and being buried in the same way that many unsaved peoples around them were dying and being buried. The waiting and dying, absent the Lord returning, soon was apparently beginning to dispirit some in the Thessalonian church. So as Paul receives this information being relayed from Timothy, Paul takes up the issue here in verse 13. In this case, Paul did not want the Thessalonian church, or for that matter, any believers to be confused or ignorant regarding those believers, those saints, who had fallen asleep or died. Well, you ask, why? Well, because any believer who had a sincere relationship in and with Christ was assured and guaranteed of two things. One, those who physically died in Christ prior to his coming would have their physical body raised and glorified at Christ's second coming, and there would be no more death, no sickness, nor sorrow. Secondly, those who physically died prior to Christ's second coming would instantly have their soul-slash-spirit go to be present with the Lord. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, we in fact read, quote, We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord, unquote. So this truth was and is far different from those who do not know the Lord nor do they believe in a God. For those who don't believe in a God, there is no solar spirit. There's only chemical slash electrical impulses in the brain which impersonally create thoughts and feelings. Further, all of these pulses, be they chemical or electrical, they cease at death and there is no, there's nothing surviving man other than memories by others who are still living and whatever legacy, if any, that they uh, created in life. Uh, life ends in the grave, and there is no beyond for any human being. But this was not the message which was presented by the Bible, nor by Christ, nor by any of his disciples. The message by the Bible, by Christ and his apostles, from cover to cover, is that we have a soul and or spirit which is eternal and that upon death that soul or spirit ultimately will be judged based upon a saving knowledge and relationship with Christ those who know Christ and have a relationship with him though they their physical body may die their soul or spirit immediately goes to be with the Lord and is there with joy eternal forevermore conversely 
those who have rejected Christ or have never received a saving relationship with him, their soul or spirit also lives eternally. However, it does not reside with God. It resides ultimately with all of those who have rejected Christ and are placed into the lake of fire. The second message that Christ and his disciples preached was that after Christ was crucified, died, and rose again, his promise was, as was with the entire Bible, that he would return again in triumph. At some point in the history of this world, as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and that all those who had died at any time in Christ, having a relationship with Christ, would have their physical bodies resurrected and rejoined with their soul slash spirit in a some glorified state. The issue here was the timing of that event. Here, for whatever reason, the Thessalonians were beginning to be dispirited with what they viewed as a period of time which was longer than what they expected for the second coming of Christ. Paul continues in verse 14, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. So here Paul returns to Christianity 101, the good news. If, in fact, Jesus lived, died, and rose again to conquer death by the power of God, our faith in Jesus and his accomplished work provides the same power of God to raise those who have died in Christ to likewise be resurrected. In terms of the chronology, the timing of what we know via Scripture, when Jesus rose again and ascended to the Father, he resurrected the physical bodies of some saints who had died and gave them a glorified body which was reunited with their spirit and took them with him to heaven. You can see this as stated in Matthew chapter 27, verse 53. Verse 15, as he, Paul continues the chronology, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. Here, the word remain, paralepomai, means left over, remain, or survive. The word prevent, pithalno, means to come before, to proceed, or to anticipate. So, according to the word of the Lord, we, those who are believers, those who have a relationship with Christ, and who survive until his coming, will not precede them, those believers, which have died. The question is, Precede them in what? In verse 16, we are told what? For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, 
and the dead in Christ shall rise first. So this is a good place for a cliffhanger. For the time being, this concludes this episode. Please join me for the next episode where we continue with the chronology of the last things. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Trust